Welcome to The Positioning Show, where we discuss topics related to the practical application of positioning for marketing, sales, and product teams. I'm April Dunford, a consultant, author, and the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B technology companies. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. So happy that you've decided to come join me today. Hey, I got a bit of a weird topic this week. I want to talk about how you know if you're getting good marketing and sales advice, which is kind of a funny topic coming from me because I'm kind of in the marketing sales and advice business. But this idea popped into my head because I got a couple of emails this week. And one of the emails I got this week was from a guy. And he said, look, April, I'm taking this online marketing course. And in that online marketing course, the professor taught a different way how to do positioning than, than your way of doing positioning. And so I put up my hand and I asked him a question. I said, well, is this different and, and better than April Dunford's way of doing positioning? And interestingly, the guy knew my stuff, which I thought was kind of cool. And he said, I've seen that stuff and I think it's very good, but I think mine is better. And so this guy sent me an email and said, well, how would you respond to that? And so I was in my office thinking about it. And I said, how would I respond to that? So this guy online said his way of doing positioning was better. And I thought, well, maybe it is. Like Maybe it is better for you and your business and your situation and your company and your product and the space that you're in. Maybe that person's way is better. This is a little philosophical, but here's the reality. This is the hard part, the really hard part about learning marketing and sales and looking at the frameworks and the methodologies and the rules. The hard part is knowing that the vast majority of what you learn isn't actually going to apply to you. And I mean, that stinks. <laughs> I get the disappointment with that. In fact, the real difference between people that are really experienced at this stuff and people that are just starting out is the people that are really experienced at this stuff are very good at knowing all the things, learning all the things. They're constantly learning, but they're really, really good at kind of looking at the situation that their product and their company is in and cherry picking out the handful of things that actually apply to that product at that time in that market. Like everything else, it feels like in my entire career, I learned this the hard way. So some of you know my background, but you know, I didn't start out in marketing. I actually studied engineering in school and then I fell into this marketing job. And so after I'd had the marketing job and I, I got a big promotion and so now I'm the vice president of marketing. And, you know, and I got really worried about this. Like, I don't know anything about marketing. I better go school myself. So I did. And I spent a crazy amount of time, you know, a decade or more. And I would say I'm still kind of a student of marketing, reading the books and taking a bunch of classes and talking to people I know that are really smart about marketing. So there was a handful of things that I learned from doing what I would call traditional marketing education. That is, taking university classes, reading the accepted marketing textbooks, and going down that whole route. And there's a handful of things that you learn really quickly. So the first one is that most of what we considered accepted marketing wisdom is based on research that was done with consumer packaged goods. 
So almost everything I learned in the first set of marketing courses I did seemed very sensible, but all of the examples were toothpaste and shampoo and makeup and and I was selling databases. <laughs> and so I was like, I think selling a database is different than selling toothpaste. I don't know, but it's, it seems like that. So that's the first thing. A lot of this stuff is based on consumer packaged goods branding and things they learn from that. And then professors and people in academia and people that are writing books, taking those lessons and stretching that out and saying, well, it works over here for toothpaste, therefore it works for everything. So that's the first thing. The second thing you learn about the accepted way of doing things with academia is that research is all based on big established brands. Nobody's actually looking at what works in a little startup or what works when you're in the really early phases or even what works when you're in like growth phase. Like all the examples, if you got any examples at all that weren't just straight consumer packaged goods. It was, it was big, big established brands. Like what is Chrysler doing? What does Volvo do? What does Pepsi Coke do? So that was the second thing. So if there I am working at a startup or a growth stage brand, and none of that seemed to apply. And then the third thing was there were almost no technology examples. And again, occasionally you would get an example of something really big, like this is what IBM does. This is what Microsoft does, you know, big, big, big established brands. But these were brands doing billions, billions of revenue. So even if in the university they were talking about an example that was a tech brand, it was usually a tech brand that was really established. And then often it was a consumer tech brand. So they would talk about, you know, the Apple iPhone or something. And again, here's me working at a startup trying to sell databases. <laughs> and, and there just wasn't a lot there to grab onto. And so what I found in academia, and again, a lot of this accepted marketing wisdom is there were bits and pieces that actually made a lot of sense to me and I thought was really useful. But then there were a lot of things that it felt like the research was on a consumer brand at a very established company. And then there was the stretching that happened where the folks in academia said, yes, well, so it worked over there. So it must work over here, even though there was very, very thin evidence for any of that. So let me give you an example. There's an idea that I was taught in school. And this idea was that product differentiation or differentiated capabilities in a product didn't actually matter because product differences were very, very easy to copy as opposed to things you could do as you were establishing your brand and you could make your brand very distinct and recognizable and known for something. And that could be anything like you could just pick that out of the air and then just spend a lot of time with marketing and achieve this distinction. And that would actually result in a way better, bigger company over time. This is only, this is the only way to do it. There's a whole bunch of stuff baked into that, that if you're a tech startup makes that advice, absolute 
garbage. Like, and I cannot say this more strenuously than that. That is garbage advice for startups for a whole bunch of reasons. Okay. So here's one. So I actually have had startups come to me and say, well, we've built this thing, but we don't think it's going to be successful over time. And we're really worried about it. Like maybe we have to get into a different market or do something different because Google could go and build that or Microsoft could go and build that. And, and let me tell you, this almost never happens <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. Like I actually worked. So, so let me tell you the story. I worked on this thing. There was this little database thing. I mentioned it before, but this little company called Wacom. It was the world's greatest embeddable database for mobile devices. We eventually got acquired by a big database company called Sybase. And that product was really growing. It was really going good. Why was it going so good? We were the only thing on the market that could do that. It, there was a handful of features that we had. It was really easy to install, really small footprint, basically managed itself, SQL that was ANSI standard and, and fairly interoperable with the other big enterprise databases on the market, bunch of things. So we've got this product. It's very differentiated in the market in terms of capabilities. So what do you, like, according to my marketing professor, that's pointless and stupid, useless thing because someone is going to just copy that. And at one point we're making 500 million, 600 million a year. Like obviously, right? Someone's just going to go and copy that because how hard is it to make a small footprint database of Nancy right? Right? Did it happen? No, it didn't. <laughs> At least it didn't happen for 20 years. And here's why. I actually got hired at IBM at one point after I'd left that company. And inside IBM, someone got the bright idea. Hey, we're in the database business too. Maybe we should have a database that competes with that database. And I worked at that project. Let me tell you how that happened inside IBM. I So first, I had to build a business case for the project. And so that took, I don't know, four or five weeks to build a business case. No big deal. Didn't take that long. But running it up the chain to get it approved took six months. <laughs> so I spent six months running the thing. And then what did I get approval for? I got approval to spec it, to spec it, not to build it to spec out what it would cost to build it. <laughs> so then I went and did that. How long did that take? That, I don't know, six, another six months approval for a couple of people to help me work on it. That some folks on the technical side were trying to spec it out. Then we had to run that all the way up the chain. That was another eight months. So we're well, you were like a year and a half into it at this point. And then we got approval to build a little thing to prove that it could be built. And that required me to get three developers Three, we're talking IBM. At that point, we had 400,000 employees. I'm trying to get approval for three developers. You know how long it took me to get approval for three developers to work on the little thing, not even the product, work on the little thing to prove that the product could be built? That took me like a year. <laughs> so then I get approval for these three developers to work on this thing. And we messed around with the thing. And then we had to take that up to the final approval, which was, okay, now we're going to get approval to actually go build the product that go compete that goes and competes with this other thing that Sybase had. And we ran it all the way up the chain and it got all the way up to the head of software group. And he said, no. And you know why he said no? He said no, because we couldn't prove that that product 
could generate a billion dollars a year in revenue in five years. <laughs> the thing we were trying to compete with wasn't generating that much revenue. <laughs> That's how these big companies think. So yes, yes. Could Microsoft build that thing and wipe you off the planet? Yes, they could. Will they? I don't know, man. Like they got to have a pretty good reason to do that. Now, the bigger threat is like, maybe there's a little competitor that looks a lot like you and that Microsoft goes and buys them. That's a whole different thing. But this idea that product differentiation doesn't matter and you shouldn't even try to do that because everyone can just compete, that's big company stuff. That is Procter & Gamble competing with Eli Lilly stuff. That's toothpaste marketing. I got the, I got the shampoo with yogurt. Oh, we can put yogurt in our shampoo too. That's what they mean when they're talking about that. They're talking about big established brands doing little incremental things. If in technology, we did not believe that technological differentiation mattered, we would be sending emails with carrier pigeons. <laughs> That's like saying innovation doesn't matter. Like that, that is dumb advice for tech companies. That is particularly stupid advice for startups. And every time people say stuff like that to me, occasionally people in tech will tell me this, like, oh, we can't differentiate on features because features are so easy to copy. I'm like, have you ever had anything to do with product in your entire life? So yeah, that's my little rant about that. You're going to get some advice that it's not that this advice is wrong, the stuff that you learn in marketing school, it's not wrong. It's correct. It just doesn't apply to you. <laughs> so that's the first thing. So that's academia. And that's one place where we can learn stuff. And I learned pretty quickly that, you know, I was learning a lot of good stuff there. I mean, I mean, it, there's a lot of things that I learned that I actually am really glad that I learned, but there were also a lot of things that did not apply to my situation whatsoever. And so then there's this whole other place where you learn, and that is like, you know, kind of the street smarts part of marketing. Like you learn by doing it, or you learn by learning from people that have gone and done it. And so you'll learn a lot of good things there too. The problem is that a lot of what you've got is the same problem as academia, only in reverse. So in academia, everything's based on research, but that research might act not actually be on companies that are applicable to you. What you see out in the real world is this more anecdotal stuff because that's all we got, right? We're not, we're, you know, we're out doing stuff. We're not making a statistically significant study on something. And so most of the people giving you advice are kind of trying to give you like, this is what I learned by doing a thing. And a lot of that advice is really good. And some of that advice is not so good. And the, the reason it's not is because sometimes what the person is describing is just an outlier event. So you'll see this a lot if you go to startup conferences where the CEO gets up and says, look, I don't know if this works for everybody else, but I did a thing and it works like this. And some people get really excited about that and take that example and say, oh my God, this worked for everybody because it worked for these guys and they're really successful. So therefore this must be a rule and a law and let's make it a law. And then, you know, we're, we're all going to go try and do the whole thing. And, and again, it might work for certain companies in a certain situation with a certain combination of factors, but it doesn't mean it's going to work in the general case. So 
can I tell you a story? I'm going to tell you a story. This, this is kind of stupid, but it, I used to tell this story all the time as an example of this story. But like, there was a point in my career where I was the VP marketing at a company. We were kind of growth stage company, like 80 million revenue. So, you know, not small. And we sold uh, ERP systems for mid-sized manufacturers. And at 80 million revenue, because we were targeting mid-sized manufacturers, mainly in North America, we had a very sophisticated digital marketing motion. And we were really good at email. Email was like the cornerstone of our thing. And we literally had email addresses and information on every mid-sized manufacturer in North America, of which there are tens of thousands, but we, we really smashed email. So we got this thing, it's pretty mature, it's pretty sophisticated. And we're doing a lot of lead generation and business development stuff. And we're doing it with email. We're doing a lot of stuff with content. We're doing events. We're doing webinars. Those are very successful for us. We're doing a certain amount of paid, but paid was never actually our one of our main channels, but we're doing a certain amount of paid. So we got the typical digital marketing thing. I got a really hotshot little team that's really good at doing digital stuff. Everybody's really young, really smart, really hungry. We're doing a bunch of stuff. And so we were really good at analyzing our data and looking for what's working, what's, what, what's not. We had this pocket of customers that we weren't doing any business with. And it was frustrating because we couldn't seem to get them to respond to any of our marketing. And they were geographically kind of together. They were mainly in Michigan and they were mainly folks that did auto parts manufacturing. And so most of these businesses had been in business for a long time, like 20, 30, 40 years. And they did a very specialized thing, selling to the auto manufacturers, some kind of little specialized part. And these folks didn't respond to anything. They, they didn't answer our emails. They didn't go to events. They never attended a webinar. They didn't do anything on our website. They never consumed any of our content. And so we thought there was maybe a little opportunity to do something with these folks, but we couldn't figure them out. Now with this company, I did not have an outside sales force. All my sales team was inside. So we never actually showed up and talked to these people. Like we were always just trying to get them on the phone, trying to get them over email, combination of both. And these guys, impossible. So that's the setup. So I, so I got to go to some trade show in Michigan and I decide what I'm going to do while I'm down there is I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to drive around. I'm going to show up at some of these places and crack this code. Like what, like what is it with these people that we can't get these people in? And so I visited five or six of these companies and it was hilarious. Like every single one was the same. They're like picture a little mid-sized manufacturing plant. So they're they're all kind of in small towns or out on the edge of town. And you drive out and there's a big parking lot. And the 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 CEO founder drives a Cadillac. <laughs> it's a real nice car. And it's parked right beside the door. And you walk in and and it looks everything looks kind of 70s. And there's a lady and she's the secretary of the owner. And you go in there and there's a lady and, you, and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm here and I'd explain who I was from. And I'd say, look, like, uh, you know, I, I just kind of want to meet the owner and I, I, I just want to talk to him, whatever. And she'd be all skeptical. But then I'd sweet talk her and then the owner would come out and the owner's great. The owner's amazing. Nobody comes to visit this guy. He's totally happy. He shows me around. And the owner looks like my dad. He's like, <laughs> he's like seven years old. He's been running this thing forever. And I'm trying to pick his brains about how do I actually market stuff to this person? So I'm asking all kinds of questions. I'm like, do you read email? 
And he says, no, I actually don't even have a computer. Like, like Janet in the front, she reads all my email. And I said, so if I send you an email, you'd never see it. He said, no. In fact, if you send me an email, I tell Janet, I don't want anything that looks like a sales pitch because I get sold stuff all the time. Like, you know, buy a timeshare condo in Florida. And I don't want to talk to any salespeople. So, okay, that's why our email is not working. He doesn't even get email. And then the second one was, I was like, well, how do you, like, you have a lot of tech here in this manufacturing plant. You've got an ERP system right now. How'd that come about? And he said, well, you know, Y2K happened. <laughs> Y2K. So, you know, when the year 2000 turned over, everybody thought that the software was going to stop working. And so there was panic amongst the manufacturing people. And so they put in a new system in 2000 and that was it. And they've not looked at it again. And I'm like, well, what would it take for you to replace this ERP? He said, it have to be broken. It would have to be broken. Like as in not working at all. And I'm like, but maybe you could have an ERP that does all kinds of new stuff. And he says, lady, everything we got working here is working just fine. There's no problem. So this, this bummed me out. And so I kept asking, like, do you go to a trade show? No. Do you read any trade magazines? No. Do you, do you do anything? No. All the answers are no. So the last guy I go to visit, I'm sitting in his office. And at this point, I'm like, I can't sell to you people because I can't afford to send a sales rep. I knew if I could send a sales rep, it'd be easy to sell this person. But my average deal size wasn't big enough to be able to afford a sales rep to go out and sell this person. And I was like, at this point, I was like, I can't sell these people anything. In fact, I'm going to have to wait for this guy to die. <laughs> and his son is going to take over. And then I'm going to be able to email his son. <laughs> his son is going to buy this thing or something. Anyways, I'm sitting there having a conversation. These guys are all awesome. So I'm having a great conversation about just life, you know, because at this point I figure out I can't market to these people. While I'm having this conversation with the last guy, there's this little noise, little noise comes. It's like a fan. It's like, little noise stops. We stop talking and, and I'm like, What's that noise? He goes, I don't know. I never heard that noise before. I don't know what that noise is. And this guy's got kind of a messy office. You know, he's been in there for 30 years. He's got piles of stuff all over. He walks over to the corner and there's this pile of stuff and he moves it. And underneath the pile of stuff is a fax machine and he's getting a fax. <laughs> and so we both walk over to the fax machine and, you know, this piece of paper comes out of the fax and the guy pulls the fax up and we stop our conversation and he reads it. And I don't even remember what the fax was about. But he got some, and I said to the guy, do you get like faxes? And he says, no, this is awesome. I haven't got one of these in years. And I was like, oh, I gotcha. <laughs> and so I come back to the office and I announced to my team, we are going to hit these guys in Michigan manufacturing and we're going to get them with a fax. And I remember my head of digital stuff, Lisa, she looked at me and she said, and you got a picture of Lisa. She's like 24 years old. She's a hotshot. She says, that's awesome. What's a fax? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to explain. It's like, a, it's imagine you have a printer, except you put something in the printer and it comes out at the customer's printer. She's like, that's so weird. I'm like, yeah, works through the phone line. It makes this funny noise. She's like, that's so weird. How do we do it? And I'm like, we need to get a fax machine. And then that was hilarious. I didn't want to admit to my boss that we're doing this fax thing because we're sophisticated digital marketers. So we had to find one. So I couldn't ask him, but we've been in this office for ages. And I was like, I bet you there's a fax machine around here somewhere. So I go to the head of customer success and I said, hey, you wouldn't happen to know where the fax machine is around here. And she's like, the fax machine? Like, 
what do you want the fax machine for? And I'm like, ha ha ha. It's just, it's kind of a joke. It's like an April fool's joke or something. Like, do you know where it is? She's like, I think it's in the closet. We pull it out. We blow the dust off. <sighs> oh my God. <laughs> Six years old. And then we ran this little campaign and the campaign was we sent a fax and then we followed up with a sales call. So the way it works was we sent the fax and the fax came out and the fax said, is your ERP system older than this fax machine? <laughs> and then we followed up with a call and, and we, we call into the secretary and say, Hey, we want to talk to, you know, whoever the owner was. And the secretary says, well, who, who are you? And he says, just tell him I'm the person that just sent him the fax. He'll be in there laughing. And we, so this thing worked so good. We booked so many meetings with this thing and we were embarrassed. Like we didn't want to, like I had a line item in my uh, monthly reports and I had to report to the CEO monthly, like how all my campaigns were doing. And so I had this campaign and we called it like the F plan or something, but because we didn't want to say facts because I thought we were going to get in trouble for running a facts thing. And, you know, after three months, this thing was like our best performing campaign month over month for three, four months in a row. We did, we literally did millions of dollars on this facts thing. And yeah. And then finally my boss asked me like, what's this F thing? And I'm like, dude, you, re you really don't want to know. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I want to know. And I'm like, we're sending faxes. <laughs> I said, Michigan. Anyways. Stupid story, but oh, what is the point of this story? The point of this story is that worked amazing for me in that situation. Have I ever run a fax campaign since? No, <laughs> no. Would I tell you to run a fax campaign? Absolutely not. Like, so there are all kinds of creative, interesting things that might work for you as a company that, you know, are not good ideas for anybody else in any other situation. And so this is a thing we have to pay attention to. Sometimes you will get, again, advice that is correct. It is correct advice. It just doesn't work for you. So the key on this stuff is figuring out what works for you. So here's my advice for how you can figure out what is good marketing advice or not good marketing advice for you in your journey to becoming better at doing a bunch of this stuff in marketing and sales. Um, so the, the first one is when you're hearing this advice, does the person, like the expert, the professor, the ex-CEO, the, the person that teaches the online marketing class, like, do they come at you and say, this is a thing and this always works? Because let me tell you, that is the tell. Anybody that is sophisticated in this stuff will never say that because it's literally never true. <laughs> And so if a person comes and says, you should only do category creation or you should only do product-led growth, that's the only thing that works. You, you should do growth hacking, just growth hacking, that's it. Or you should only do positioning this way. One of two things is true. Either they are not actually deep enough on that topic to understand the great swaths of the market where that advice does not apply or they're conning you. They're conning you for profit. And, and I think the first case 
is more true <laughs> because they actually are giving you good advice. They just don't have any experience in the realm outside of where that advice makes sense. And so it's up to you to filter that, which brings me to point number two of how you actually do this. Like you need to actually sit down, understand the person and, and look at the examples and dig into that a little bit. Like are the examples B2B or B2C? Because I'll tell you, my experience is there's a lot of stuff that works in B2C that absolutely does not work in B2B. Like this actually drives me crazy because there are all kinds of people online that will tell you, you have to do this marketing exactly like this. And the reason you have to do it is because liquid death did it. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm selling a database. <laughs> like it is not the same as selling the death water. It's different. These things are different. So that's one thing, B2B versus B2C. I think you need to actually tease these things apart. That doesn't mean we can't learn some stuff from the B2C people or the B2C people can't learn some stuff from B2B. Uh, but I, I think that you should be very careful with that advice and separate it out. If people are saying you should do that because a consumer product did it and you're not a consumer product, uh, you might want to look into that a little bit more. The second thing, established business versus not established business. So again, marketers love to give this advice and say, you should do this because Steve Jobs did this at Apple, or you should do this because, you know, some big established business, Google did this, whatever. And, and there's just stuff you can do when you have 500 million revenue, a billion revenue, a bajillion salespeople, brand equity in the market, all kinds of traction. Like there's just all kinds of stuff you can do that you as a hundred person startup are never going to be able to execute on. So again, I think you need to draw the line there. Established versus business versus not established business. Here's another one, big ticket, expensive software that with a long sales cycle versus $99 transactional stuff where you're selling a volume of it. Like, I see tons of people trying to give advice that have only ever done this low ticket stuff and people over on the enterprise saying, Ooh, we got, we got to do that because those guys did it. And let me tell you that that is completely different go to market motion for the most part, this, you know, low price transactional stuff versus big ticket, difficult to sell stuff, long sales cycles, everything is different. Here's the other one. Who are you actually selling to? So I, there's a very different go-to-market motion if you're selling to end users, like an end user actually slaps down their credit card and buys this thing in B2B versus you're selling to management. And even if I'm thinking about management, like if I'm selling to first line manager, so I've got a little team and there's four or five people in the team and the manager buys the software for four or five people in the team, that is very different from... I'm selling to the CIO, I'm selling to the head of development, I'm selling to the head of HR, where there's nine levels of management below that. And it's something that maybe gets rolled out to the entire organization. Like the buying teams on these two things are completely different. The approval process for doing a deal like that, completely different. And so you'll get a lot of, again, well-intentioned, well-meaning advice that people come and say, oh, you should do this thing but the company they're talking about is selling some $99 thing to end users 
versus you're selling a thing that's $50,000 and you're selling to the head of whatever, totally different. And a lot of this advice isn't going to apply to you. Oh, and then, and, and then here's the last one tech versus everything else. <laughs> like, we just do stuff different in tech. I'll tell you, technology gets bought different. People think about tech different. It is not the same as selling bubblegum. It's just not the same. It's not the same as selling a Rolex. It's not the same. There's just so many things that are different about it. Like selling tech versus selling things that are not tech. These are different things. And so if you're trying to learn something about marketing and all you're looking at the examples and none of those examples are tech, be careful, be careful because a lot of this stuff, some of it you can cherry pick, but a lot of this stuff, you're not actually going to be able to apply it to your business. So let's come back to my, you know, my folks that sent me the email this week and said, you know, a guy on the internet said I was wrong. <laughs> like, like, here's the thing. Like I try to be very careful about this stuff because that frustrated me so much when I was inside trying to learn marketing, trying to execute on stuff. I was very frustrated with people that came and said, this thing always works when in fact there were all these caveats around it. So whenever I'm giving advice to people, I try to lead with all the caveats. Like, like when I think about positioning, I am not thinking about consumer stuff. I am only thinking about B2B. People, last week, somebody made the comment on one of the episodes of the podcast and said, can you use more B2C examples? And I'm like, no, because I don't know what I'm doing in B2C. This is not like, I don't know nothing about B2C. You should not be taking B2C advice from me. If you're consumer stuff, I mean, use it your own risk. Maybe there's something good you can use here, but I do not represent that this stuff is going to work with B2C at all. <laughs> Here's the other thing. It's even more specific than that. It's not just B2C to be. It's most of the stuff that I've worked on is fairly complicated. It's complex stuff. It, it tends to be more enterprisey. It's more big ticket stuff. It's stuff that, that, you know, the sales cycles are longer than a couple of weeks. They're generally months. It's things that, you know, we're not always selling straight in super high in the organization, but a lot of the time we are. And so it's, big ticket, B2B, long sales cycle. You probably have a sales team involved somewhere. If what you're doing is outside of that, my stuff is probably not for you. <laughs> like you can read it. I would encourage you to read it and look at it then see if there's something you can use, but just don't come back to me and say, Hey, you said this would work everywhere. I never said it would work everywhere, man. It doesn't work everywhere. I don't know. I haven't worked anywhere. I don't know. I only know this one little thing. And then even within that, does it work every time? Heck no. <laughs> like there are always going to be examples where something else is going to work better. And here's the thing. You should never let anyone, a professor or the person that teaches your online marketing class or the lady that does the podcast that you listen to, never let anybody tell you that a thing you're doing that works doesn't work. Like nobody can argue with success. Like if you got a thing and it's working for you, just use that thing, man. <laughs> like that is the best advice I can give you. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been a ridiculous episode. Oh my gosh. You know, I appreciate you folks showing up every week. I'm having a lot of fun with this podcast. I would love it if you gave it a ranking or a review. Like that's kind of all I ask for you. I don't have 
sponsors on this podcast. I'm sponsoring myself. It's brought to you by April. And April says, hey, I would appreciate if you gave a ranking or review. Thank you so much. I will see you next week.